Let us um, open our Bibles and read. Today's scripture reading is from Acts 28, 17 through 31. That's Acts 28, 17 through 31. Hear the word of the Lord. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, my brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I'm bound, that I'm bound with this chain. They replied, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there has reported, said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that many people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to our ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will hear it. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they may see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Bob, and I hope you all had a happy Thanksgiving in whatever way you celebrated that. And uh, as you heard from Jake, on to Christmas. So uh, we're also in transition in our time Sunday morning. Today is the last day to talk about, from the book of Acts, the beautiful church. Not necessarily this one, but Jesus' universal church, and hopefully Chelton. Um, Today we're going to finish it, and next Sunday we start Advent and a new series, uh, so stay tuned for that. Today, as we look one more time at this beautiful book called The Acts of the Apostles, we might even rename it as The Acts of Jesus Through His Church. 
And uh, in our series, we've seen different ways that Jesus' church is beautiful, and today we're going to conclude with the way the book itself concludes. Paul under house arrest in Rome. Now, (laughs) if you know anything about the book or the way the book might end, you might be saying, what? (laughs) He's a prisoner? And that's the way the book ends? Can at least we have a little upbeat here? Um, Well, let let me remind you the way the whole book is written. The way it starts in chapter 1 is Jesus in his resurrection body before he goes up to heaven tells his disciples to go into all the world, present the good news, start first in that city, Jerusalem, and then in concentric circles, the districts around Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and then, of course, to the end of the earth, the furthest regions. And that's actually how the book is written. So beginning in chapter 2, it's in Jerusalem. Peter is preaching, presenting the gospel to the Jewish people. And then later on, Peter to the Samaritan people and the people of Judea. And then Paul, chapter 13, takes it into what we would call um, the rest of the Roman Empire. For them, it was the furthest reaches of the planet. And uh, that's the way the book is written. And that is what we're going to look at today in the way it ends. Acts shows us that the church is beautiful because the gospel is for everyone, everywhere, and in every culture. The gospel of Christ transforms people in any culture. It does not do what some religions do that fossilize a particular culture in the past and then impose it onto the present. For instance, Islam does that. You realize that? It takes 7th century Arabia in the way they dress, spoke, worshipped, and had their civilization, and imposes that on everyone who follows Islam. The gospel isn't that way. It is transcultural. It transforms people in any and every culture. That's why uh, the church around the world can look different outwardly, but inwardly the heart of every church beats the same because it's what we believe about Jesus and the gospel. Now, we use the word a lot, gospel. Maybe I should just offer a definition here because we have to be careful that we're talking the same language, right? And nowhere in the Bible does it actually come out and say, here's exactly what the gospel is in this many words. You have to kind of piece it together from the book of Acts, the letters of Paul, but it's not like we don't know what it is. I'm trying to boil it down now into a a sentence or two. See what you think of this. The gospel is an announcement of good news, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to live and die for sin, rose from death, reigns in heaven, and is returning to earth. 
this good news demands a response. You can't be neutral. Faith in Jesus Christ brings eternal life now and forever. Now, there's more that could be said, of course, but at, at its essence, I think that's what, the, what Jesus taught, what the apostles taught, and what we believe as the gospel. So, the church of Jesus is beautiful, bottom line, because the gospel is our center. That's what we see in this passage. Far from it being like, oh, this ends on a depressing note. No, what you see at the end of the book is the gospel shining clearly. I want to show you that today. Before we get to it, one more piece of history context to bring us to where we are today. The book of Acts has Paul making missionary trips. Today we would call them short-term mission trips, right? Except they weren't too short <laughs> because he had to walk or, you know, go by boat or something like that. So it took him a year or two, and he did three of these from what you might call the land of Israel, Syria, where he went west in his direction on his map into what we would call the modern Turkey, Asia Minor in Bible times, and then into Greece. He went there three times <clears throat> with other people. They started churches, and every time he went back, he revisited those churches and tried to go a little further, and then he would come back home. Now, on the third trip, when he came back home, the Jewish leaders were so upset in Jerusalem that they had him arrested as the ringleader of this new sect, remember that was in the passage here, that was part of Judaism, but it was messing up Judaism in their ideas. So they were able to trump up false charges against Paul and have him arrested. And Paul appealed to Caesar in Rome. Now, probably he did that because he wanted to go to Rome eventually. He tells in the book of Romans, he says, I want to eventually come and see you on my trip to Spain. <laughs> see where Paul was thinking? He was going as far west as he could. But before that plan was part of his itinerary, <laughs> he was forced there with chains around his wrists. So the book of Acts describes this. Uh, he's arrested, put on board a ship with soldiers, and off to Rome he goes. Now, that may not sound like too bad, right? You, I know some of you travel internationally, you know, get a ticket to Rome. Hey, cappuccino, buongiorno, you know, let's have some good pasta. Uh-uh. No, no, no. Paul is a prisoner, and the Roman soldiers rented space in cargo ships. And you can imagine they weren't the most first-class accommodations, right? So it's rough. And if you read the book of Acts, the ship sails when it's good weather, when it's bad. Either it's, you know, really rough seas, or one time the ship actually was destroyed and everybody swam to a local island, Malta. 
and they were there for three months until they could get another ship. Anyway, eventually they made that 1,000-mile journey. Think about that. Not by plane, not on land, but by boat. 1,000 miles. So if you try to visualize this, like Philly goes south, where do you think 1,000 miles would take you? Miami, Florida. <laughs> if you go west, St. Louis, Missouri. Oh, this is not some little weekend excursion. This is a huge geographic movement. And Paul's no youngster either. If you run the chronology, he's probably about 60 years old. This is difficult. And he makes it there. And we find him now in Rome in Acts chapter 28. He's in a rented house. They know he's not going to try to run, but he's got a soldier with him. And he has freedom to come and go and have people come and visit him. So in this last story in the book of Acts, we're going to see him in a city of a million people. That's what scholars say the population of Rome was. It was the capital of the empire. Now, let's see what he's doing in relation to the gospel. I want to show you three things. Number one, he presents the gospel in a clear way. The gospel is clear. Secondly, the reception of the gospel is divided. So the gospel presents division between people who hear it. But third, the gospel is unstoppable. All right, first, in verses 17 through 23, it talks about, first of all, Paul inviting Jewish leaders of the synagogues into his home to kind of explain who he is and why he's there. And if you remember the passage, they say, well, we haven't heard any bad things from these guys in Judea that were, you know, fellow Jews, so tell us about what you believe. So Paul said, well, fine, come back tomorrow and, you know, we'll have our brunch and talk about this. That's not in the Greek even, the brunch. That's just me. Because, but it says from morning till evening, right? So they had to eat. So uh, Paul presents. Now, I would ask you, what if you have your Bible open, you can cheat if you want to, but what does Paul talk about? And for you and I, we might say, well, I guess he talks about the gospel. It doesn't say that. It says he talks about, in verse 23, the kingdom of God. Now, of course, he talks about the gospel, but what does this phrase kingdom of God mean? In fact, if I were to ask you, you know, like I just did, give me a definition of the gospel, would you use kingdom language there? I don't know. Maybe you could. But what Paul does is to frame the discussion about Jesus. He's going to get to Jesus. But he starts with a big narrative of redemption. So let's, let's do that for a minute. What do you think Paul was talking about? Well, I can tell you what he's talking about because it's clear from the law and the prophets. That's what verse 23 says. What does Genesis say? That there's a heavenly king who creates the planet Earth and he creates by his word and he expects the Earth to operate the way the king 
builds it to operate. And then he creates humans in his image, and he tells them to rule over the earth that he had created. Hear that language of kingship? And you go two chapters, and you find that the king and queen are tempted by another ruler, a usurper who comes in and whispers, I've got a better way. Do it your way. Do it my way. You don't have to listen to him. And suddenly, sin enters the universe and crashes down both in the cosmos and inside the hearts of Adam and Eve. What does God do? His rule is shattered. Adam and Eve go their own way. And here, the God of Scripture, the God of redemption and compassion, sets out the long war to displace the usurper and to exercise his kingship. How does it happen? Well, you know, Genesis 3. He makes a promise that God would reverse the curse through the seed, the offspring of that woman someday. And that begins the adventure. Who is he? When is he coming? And eventually he comes, and he is called the second Adam. He will reverse the curse. He will undo the damage that the first Adam did. And when he comes... He does the most amazing work. He takes care of that sin issue finally and completely. And then eventually, he will come back with kingly power and establish the new creation forever and ever. Revelation. So what have I done? I've just walked on the mountain peaks of the Bible to tell the story of the kingdom rule of God. And I think that's what Paul did. Because he went, it says in verse 23, to the law and the prophets, that is the, the Bible, the Old Testament, right? There was new, no New Testament yet. So he's explaining how it worked. And then in verse 23, he came also to persuade them about Jesus. Jesus, in verse 20, is called the hope of of Israel, the Jewish Messiah. He was the one who was predicted in the Old Testament, predicted by types, you know, shadows. So whether it's, uh, what, Joseph in Genesis, Moses in Exodus, David, King David, all of these humans were not the Messiah, but they looked enough like the Messiah to give the people a thirst for the real one when he came. And in addition to that, the law and the prophets gave individual predictions down to uh, the city, the town where the Messiah would be born. O little town of Bethlehem, says Micah, Isaiah, Daniel, specific prophecies about a suffering servant and a reigning servant. This is what Paul's talking about. Wouldn't you love to have a little recording <laughs> of that discussion where, you know, Paul says, let's just say, the suffering servant, Isaiah 53. 
And somebody says, no, that's not what it means. That's back and forth, back and forth, from morning till evening. And yet Paul wouldn't move. Paul was not like, oh, well, you know what? I never thought of that. You're right. Because remember, this man saw the risen Christ. <laughs> You're not going to persuade him otherwise. And that's why the apostles earlier on in the book said, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. There's an exclusivity to Christianity that you just can't get away from. It is true. It is true truth. The hymn writer said, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. And like Paul, you and I have to be grounded in the truth of what the gospel is. So, question for you. If somebody were to ask you, give me the whole story from Genesis to Revelation, could you do it? I don't mean every little detail, but can you give the high points? Kind of like what I just did there? That's the kingdom of God. That's the expansive message that should dominate our lives from the moment we wake up to when we go to bed and everything in between. I see people who, they think of the gospel in a very personalized way only. Like the gospel means I'm going to heaven when I die. Or the gospel means Jesus forgives my sin. And I say, that's really good, because that's true. But that's the personalized part of it. It's not the cosmic part of it. Get the big picture, and the personal picture will be even more meaningful to you. That's what we've been talking about. This is a beautiful church, not just a beautiful my salvation. So to be grounded in the gospel means to always be reading Scripture, reading about Scripture, being amazed at the complexity of God's revelation, and hearing stories like we did a few minutes ago about the gospel and other people's lives. It is power, power that changes people. And that means when you, sorry, one more point I have to say. When you read the Bible, don't just say, okay, give me the New Testament. All right, well, what about three-quarters of the Bible that you just forgot about? I have a friend who used to say, he's with the Lord now, but he used to say, the Old Testament plus Jesus equals the New Testament. I think he's exactly right. Let me say it again. It's a simple formula. The Old Testament, add Jesus who fulfills, you get the New Testament. It's one story. It's one book. Let's not forget the major part of it. Now, uh, if it's this beautiful, am I overselling this? It's like you would think, well, then why, why doesn't everybody believe it? Well, the, the second thing we see in this passage here in Acts chapter 28 is 
it's divisive. It was in Paul's day. It was in Jesus' day. In verses 24 through 29, you've got a story here of Paul discussing back and forth. But then, not everybody agrees. He's not able to persuade everybody. Now, you've got to remember that Paul was living in an uh, empire where Christianity was considered an illegal religion. Judaism was a legal religion. So Christianity, this offshoot of Judaism, ooh, it didn't have uh, sanction by the empire. This hostility, you can see this recorded in the Gospels, even against Jesus, and especially in the book of Acts. Um, you remember Peter and John, right early on in chapter 4, get arrested because they're talking about Jesus. Stephen was stoned to death. And, of all things, this man, Paul, <laughs> Steve, uh, Luke uses his other name, his Jewish name, Saul, What's he doing? He's out hunting down Christians to murder. So, yeah, that's just three snapshots of what we would call persecution or opposition in the early church. That didn't stop Christians from sharing the gospel because they knew from Jesus that opposition is just part of it. And then Paul quotes in verses 26 and 27, two verses from Isaiah about the unbelief of God's people in Isaiah's day, 700 years before Paul. And he says, this applies to you men that are not believing. Well, what did Isaiah say? Isaiah said, if you don't listen, God will harden your ears, your hearts. Oh, that was like an insult to the men. So it says, they left <laughs> after Paul said that. Oof. That kind of opposition we see in the early church, after the book of Acts, after the New Testament is written, you see it from both Judaism as well as the Roman Empire. Periodic persecution, yes but definitely it was on the outside. The church was on the outside of the empire. But it didn't stop with the Romans. For the last 2,000 years, the gospel has been resisted. At times, Christians persecuted. And this pattern is only interrupted by revivals, which God can bring. But either way, the cosmic war continues. Are you used to it? <laughs> I hope so. Like Paul, we live in an empire that is hostile to Christianity. There was an article written last year by Aaron Wren, R-E-N-N, -N, in a magazine called First Things entitled Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. Once it showed up there, it started to multiply in other online sources. I don't know if you've heard of them or the article, but it's very, very helpful to look at America and its relationship to Christianity. Here's what he says. 
there, were th there are three worlds, he calls them. The first world he calls the positive world. From the beginning of our nation until 1994, I'm quoting now, Christianity was viewed positively by society and Christian morality was normative. To be seen as a religious person and one who exemplifies traditional Christian values was a social positive. Then, in 20, sorry, in 1994 came the neutral world, positive neutral. That went to 2014, when Christianity was seen as socially neutral. It no longer had the dominant status in society, but it was seen as a, like a hobby, he calls it, to be a Christian. It was a personal preference. It wasn't good, it wasn't bad. Christian moral norms still retained some sort of residual force. And then, in 1994, oh, sorry, in 2014, this is when Wren says things turned negative. So positive, neutral, negative world. He says in this world, and we're still there, of course. Being a Christian now is a social negative, especially in high-status positions. Christianity, in many ways, is seen as undermining the social good, and Christian morality is expressly repudiated. Now, does that resonate? If you, if you know what's going on in whatever part of this world you're you know, interfacing with. I, I think, right, something has changed, and it's changing fast. Now, in my opinion, we must not expect to return to either the positive or the neutral world unless God sends a revival. We can mourn that, but we can't go back to the good old days or wish we were there. We are here in the negative world. And if you say, oh, brother, it's 12 noon, come on, tell me something positive. I just did. What? You said we're in the negative world. Yes, we are back in the pagan Roman Empire when the church was born and thrived. Take heart. Christianity has always prospered when it's under attack, when it's in exile, if you were, when it's not part of the structures. The growth of the church is never based on the society around it. That's why, if you wonder about that, that's why missionaries are sent out not to overthrow governmental structures, right? You send missionaries to talk to people about the gospel. So it's an internal, bottom-up influence, not a top-down force on the external. That's why I think it's an exciting time to be alive. What is God going to do? Sure, it's not the way it was, but that doesn't matter. Things are never the way it was. I'm not the same <laughs> as I was yesterday. My own father-in-law passed away last week at 96 years old. Life never stays the same. 
But what stays the same is the gospel. And that's why the church is beautiful, because the gospel is our center. So be realistic about the reception of the gospel. Not everyone who hears it will believe it. And the fact that people don't believe it shouldn't discourage us from sharing it. It didn't stop Paul, right? He didn't say, well, if you don't want to hear, I guess I'll go back to making tents full time. No, he kept persuading people. Now, why did he do that? Because he knew that the advance of the kingdom of God cannot be stopped. That's the third thing. In verses 30 and 31, the way the book ends, on the surface it might sound like, oh man, he's under house arrest. He can't do anything. He didn't read it carefully enough. Yes, he's under house arrest. He's in a negative world. But what is he doing? Verse 30 says, For two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. The man who traveled thousands of miles to spread the gospel is now confined under house arrest. And what's he doing? He's still a missionary, right? He can't do it out there, so he does it in here. Not only is this man unstoppable, but that's because the gospel is unstoppable. Now, it's hard to imagine, like I said earlier, this man, Paul, he was the main opposer of the gospel. Now he's become the main promoter of it. Well, that shouldn't be totally surprising. God loves to do the unexpected. He saves sinners. That is what the gospel is. Remember what Jesus promised in Matthew 16? I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, the powers of death, will not be strong and overcome it. So you've got two powers going here, Satan and death and destruction, and Jesus advancing his church. And Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. The church will prevail. Maybe not in this particular town or this particular time, but overall, the church is being built by Jesus. And Paul, in his last letter, 2 Timothy 2.9, has one of my most favorite verses where Paul, with chains on his wrists, now he's in his final prison, not recorded in the book of Acts. He said, this is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. I may be but the gospel is not. You hear the power in that. That's amazing. That's beautiful. That's the center of our church and every church that follows Jesus. So like Paul, we must witness to everyone about the true king, announce the good news, and be assured that some will believe it. Some will, not everyone. Remember, people visited Paul regularly. 
who's knocking on your door, the door of your life? Who's coming through your, your front door? Are you telling them about Jesus? Are you welcoming people into a conversation? That's how the church grows. You don't have to be a pro. You just be a Christian and tell them about Jesus. Just like that video where Lois just told this, uh, what did you call him, a boy? <laughs> They're sitting right there, both of them. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you just tell them. You never know where people are on their journey. Give them the gospel, and God will use it. You can reach those around you with the gospel. And you can also support those who you cannot reach personally. We call that missions. Did you know that when you give money to Chelton, our church distributes it to about 25 global partners all over the world? How exciting is that? church is so beautiful because the gospel is our center. So be confident in the gospel and in the Spirit of God who's always working. Your efforts are not in vain because the gospel is unstoppable. So, that's the end of the book of Acts. But it's not the end of the story, is it? You and I are writing it every day day. What are you doing to become the next chapter of the book of Acts? So, Father, thank you for the great news about Jesus, that we can know you by faith, we can be part of something bigger than ourselves, and that someday we will see you in this new creation. Ah, that's a great, great piece of news to announce. It's, it's even greater to believe it and to get to know you day by day better and better. Lord, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray.